Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. Each of these messages were given by various faculty, staff, and friends of Emmaus Bible College. To view each series as a whole, or for more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. That's C-O-N-C-E-R-N-I-N-G-H-I-M.com. Welcome back to our study of the Gospel according to Matthew. Today we are going to look at the Sermon on the Mount, particularly the opening section, which is often called the Beatitudes. We have just had a brief overview of the sermon and examined some different perspectives on it. From our last time, we learned that the Sermon on the Mount is best understood as Matthew's own phrasing of an actual discourse of Jesus, and that Luke probably records his own unique phrasing of the same discourse in Luke 6. We saw that this sermon is intended for Jesus' disciples, uh, but that the distinct group called the crowds are in earshot and are also in view. Now, since this ethical teaching is for Jesus' disciples, it therefore remains valid for modern-day disciples as authoritative. And this is opposed to a more Lutheran view in which the purpose is merely to convict us of our sinfulness. And it's also opposed to a, a more traditional dispensational view in which these instructions are not for the church age. As important for us today, we then need to listen carefully to the opening section to see who is under consideration. We have already seen Matthew's summary statement of Jesus' teaching in chapter 4, verse 23, that Jesus was proclaiming the gospel, or the good news, of the kingdom. We have here a much fuller version of that statement in three whole chapters, uh, but note at the outset that the message which Jesus is preaching is called good news. But as John has already warned us, that is John the Baptist, uh, there are some for whom the coming of the kingdom is not good news at all. It's bad news. It's like the sound of the axe being swung. Thus, the all-important question is, for whom is it good news? Who will benefit from this kingdom proclamation? This question continues to be relevant, as it seems like so many religious groups, even those outside of the umbrella of Christendom, think Jesus is on their side. Leaders like Gandhi or Muhammad, when, well, the list goes on, all have the idea, especially for uh, Christian groups today, whether uh, even broadly understood like Mormons or Jehovah Witnesses or Catholics or Orthodox or Protestant, the list goes on. All sorts of people want to think that if Jesus were alive today, giving a message to us today, he would certainly be in agreement with their agenda. I wonder how would we draw the line of who is in and who is out? If we had to boil it down to a few big descriptors, what would they be? But instead of drawing a line around ourselves, which conveniently includes Jesus in it, and then pronouncing all those on the other side as those who are out, we need to listen carefully and see how Jesus himself draws the line. That is, according to Jesus, who are the ones for whom his kingdom, for whom his coming, is a blessing, for whom uh, the coming of Jesus really is good news? Let's read in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In contrast to Luke's version, Matthew's Jesus only focuses on the positive, blessed, and, and there aren't any woes. Uh, however, that is, uh, that's not to say that he doesn't have any woes. Uh, Matthew has his own set of seven woes in chapter 23. Uh, the Beatitudes here are best seen as a collective group. This isn't a cafeteria-style approach in which a person should think that uh, they are blessed because, well, say they're merciful, but that they aren't pure in heart. Uh, some of these are clearly ethical categories, again, particularly the, the merciful or the pure in heart or the peacemakers. Some are more about being in oppressive circumstances, such as those who mourn or the poor. These all come together in the eighth beatitude as those who are downtrodden and oppressed because of their godly behavior. Thus, the Beatitudes pronounce God's blessing on uh, the righteous oppressed and announce to them that the coming kingdom is good news uh, because God will reverse their circumstances. The idea is not that there is a paradoxical blessing in suffering. No, the idea is that the kingdom will change their circumstances so that, for example, though one is mourning now, there is a coming day in which God will wipe away all those tears. Not only does this mesh well uh, with the earlier presentation of the kingdom announcement, but it also coheres well with the allusions which we find in the Beatitudes. Uh, let's consider Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Notice the repeated themes of the good news, the poor, the comforting of all who mourn. And, and notice also that there's this reversal motif, the beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning. Uh, these first couple Beatitudes then are best understood as providing a word of hope for those who are in desperation, uh, those whose poverty extends to the very depths of their being, uh, to their souls. The next couple should probably also be seen in the same vein. The meek, citing Psalm 3711, are the downtrodden who refuse to take matters into their own hands, but patiently wait on the Lord. Uh, 
Uh, Notice the logic of these Beatitudes. Uh, They are blessed. The good news is for them because something will happen. Now, the first and the last Beatitudes bracket the whole set and are in the present tense. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And all the other ones sandwiched in the middle are in the future tense. So the overall idea is of future blessing with the coming kingdom. The present tense in verses 3 and 10 are not exceptions to this pattern. Um, In fact, I I like to compare this with the end of chapter 6, where Jesus says we are to lay up treasures in heaven. So in a sense, we do have them right now, but in another sense, we're waiting for them. Uh, The poor in spirit have the kingdom, it is theirs, and yet they are waiting for it. Again, the basic idea is that those who are downtrodden will soon have their situation reversed when God rules over the world. Similarly, I agree with those scholars who see verse 6 as referring to those who are uh, starved for justice. The allusion to Isaiah 61 and Psalm 37 point in this direction, and the Greek certainly allows for this understanding of verse 6. Moreover, the Greek has alliteration for the first several lines. Uh, They all uh, start with the letter P. And this can't come across in English, uh, but in Greek, this is a natural grouping of the first four Beatitudes, suggesting that they should all be similarly understood. Notice that this reading also quite comfortably fits with Luke's version. In chapter 6, verses 20 and 21, we read, And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. But this is not to say that the group in question are simply the oppressed, as if any poor person is automatically in. That's not the idea of these illusions either, and it is certainly ruled out by the remaining half of the Beatitudes, and is definitely ruled out by the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. So one of the mistakes to avoid here is to just pick our favorite Beatitude, print it out on our computer, frame it, and hang it on the wall and think that's all there is to it. These need to be understood in in their larger context. Uh, So far, we have looked briefly at the nature of the blessing. It is the future restoration that comes with the kingdom as predicted in the Old Testament. We have also seen the nature of the blessed. Uh, The first half describes their historical context as being downtrodden and oppressed. And the second half of the Beatitudes, uh, numbers 5 through 8, describe their spiritual context as being the righteous. But let's consider how Jesus describes the righteous, the ethical qualities of those who are blessed. Each of the moral categories particularly resonates with something in the Sermon on the Mount. The merciful resonates with sections like 614, If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father also will forgive you. Or think of 7-1, Judge not, so that you be not judged. The pure in heart resonates with sections like 527-30, and the prohibition against lust that we read there. It also contrasts with statements that Jesus will later say, like uh, in 23:25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup so that, outside, so that the outside also may become clean. 
Again, here we have the idea of inward purity that extends not just to the outside, but deep down into the heart. The peacemakers and the persecuted uh, easily resonates with sections like 538 to 48 with its famous law of non-retaliation and loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you. So, I wonder, how did Jesus' description of those who are in his circle uh, match up with the ones that we thought of earlier? When I mentioned earlier, how would you generally describe those that are in as opposed to those who are out? Would we devote such a good chunk of our precious list if we only had eight sentences or so? Would we devote so much time to the theme of reversal, changing the situation of those who are oppressed? Uh, Would the descriptors of mercy and pure in heart make the list? Would we describe the heirs of the kingdom as those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake? If not, uh, this only prompts us to set aside our own agendas, uh, to, to be quiet, to sit down at the feet of Jesus, and to listen carefully to what he, uh, the one with all authority, has to say. He is the one who gets to decide who is in and who is out, the one for whom his coming really is good news. We shouldn't presume to think on our own that we can make up uh, or that we can draw that circle for for ourselves. All of this highlights the importance of listening carefully to the Sermon on the Mount as it will uh, go into greater detail expounding all of these features. Uh, How important is that we listen carefully to Jesus and, and we fit his category of those who are truly blessed because he says, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the sons of God, and blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit emmaus.edu partner.